When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mid-American Bandwagon Podcast, episode 58, coming to you live this week. As always, I am Zach Follador, steering this ship with my co-host, Steve Helwick, live from Houston. Steve, how you doing, man? I'm doing excellent, and as I say each week, each week we record one of these is one week closer to college football, and we are less than 20 days now, which is fun. And yeah. looking forward to some of those week zero games and week one. I know I think there's three Mac games on that opening Thursday night, including a Bowling Green, Tennessee opening match. And that would be, that, that'd be a fun game if Bowling Green could win that game. I'd like to see <laughs> Tennessee Twitter. So I was going to um, say Tennessee, the Tennessee fans might break Twitter that night. If Bowling Green won that game. <laughs> I just remember when they lost to Georgia state and the, the account just stopped tweeting and everybody was responding to the uh, account after the third quarter score. They're like, what happened next? Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. What a, what a, what a, uh, I put Tennessee up there with like Nebraska over these last couple of years, just like these, you know, old traditional powers that are just, they're, fan bases are just have been tortured for the last couple of seasons so we'll see but you're right if football is getting closer and closer uh nfl preseason started uh, last week i got to watch the steelers take on the cowboys obviously hard knocks has started this week as well so all the things that start to happen as football season approaches are all happening so uh it's i'm excited for a for a full football season this year especially in college with that let's get right into it here this week steve one one news story we wanted to touch on here, folks, tonight before we jump into our Toledo and, and uh, Miami season previews. Uh, Kent State, we've we've talked a lot about how they've improved so much over the last three years under Sean Lewis. Well, uh, the Golden Flashes administration uh, rewarded Sean Lewis for that success yesterday, uh, extending his contract through 2025, uh, gave him some additional money for to give him a, his his assistance a raise as well. Steve, I got to be honest, man. I, you know, I was looking back at uh, the articles that were written when Sean Lewis got hired at Kent state and seeing, you know, what it was like the last couple of years under Paul Haynes. It's, it's really quite remarkable what Sean Lewis has done at Kent state the last three years. I think maybe folks that don't follow the Mac as closely might not realize that, but I mean, this was a bad program when Sean Lewis uh, came to Kent uh, in December of 2017. And now here we are four years later, they're competing for conference championships. Yes, Kent State was about as bad as any program in the FBS. Since 1980, they had only had two winning seasons when Sean Lewis inherited this program. That would have been a 6-5 and five season in 2001. And then that one miracle season in 2012 where they were a MAC championship win away from making the Orange Bowl. NIU ended up getting that Orange Bowl bid in a double overtime thriller, though. So that, that season was definitely a remarkable one for Kent State, but they crashed and burned since when Daryl Hazel left for Purdue the Paul Haynes era never got any results starting at four and eight and then getting worse and worse every year having nine and ten losses and the coaching search was just a complete dumpster fire when gone in 2017 and all these teams were filling coaching slots and Kent State just had to wait and there were reports that they had searched for successful FCS division two division three head coaches and at least 15 of them had turned the Kent State job down. So it was not a desirable job, even though Ohio and the Western Pennsylvania area have a lot of good football and it could be a good recruiting place, a good place to build a culture and program. Nobody really wanted this Kent State job. And that was a lot of it due to the history and the culture that had formed there over the years. Sean Lewis really took a gamble on himself with this job and it is already working wonders in Kent State 
you have to extend him at this point because he's brought to this program to it looks like heights that they haven't reached before. And the fact that they got their first bull win in the program history under Sean Lewis, they turned an offense from 129th in scoring to first in scoring from 2017 to 2020. You have to acknowledge Sean Lewis for it. And on the other side, you also just be due to your status in the Mac and it's unfortunate reality. You're also going to have to fear that Sean Lewis is probably going to get poached by another program soon. So that also will allow that program to pay that buyout if and when that day comes. Yeah, I think I think that increased buyout is is a huge thing for for Kent State here because here's the thing. You you extend Sean Lewis through 2025, but if Kent State wins 8 or 9 games this year and goes to a bowl game, I'd be willing to bet there's going to be a program out there that's going to try and and lure him away. So I think that increased buyout there is definitely a big part of this for, for Kent State to make sure that they secure, you know, financial stability for their program. But everything that you said, I, you know, I was doing research on this earlier, and it's I, I would just echo everything you said. I mean, I don't think we can emphasize enough here that whenever Kent State hired Sean Lewis, nobody wanted this job. Nobody wanted to go to Kent State. I mean, you even look, you mentioned Daryl Hazel and, and the 2012 team that uh, was a, uh, you know, a MAC championship uh, loss away from going to uh, the Orange Bowl. Paul Haynes takes over that next year, right? So you'd think, you know, you win 10 games, one of the best seasons in school history, some momentum of that will carry over to the next season. That did not happen at all for Kent State. I mean, by by week six, again, the next year, Kent State was terrible. And it was so I mean, it was literally a one hit wonder they had in 2012 there. And um, it's really it's really remarkable, you know, what Sean Lewis has done, as you said, went from 129th in, to, in scoring offense to first. So he, he definitely earned uh, this. Um, he definitely earned this contract extension. His base salary coming into this year was $450,000. They have not released what his new salary is going to be, but I, I would imagine it's, it's a bit more than that. And, um, and again, this new contract for him runs through uh, 2025. So we'll see. I think obviously their results on the field will depend upon how much longer Sean Lewis is going to be there. But it seems like the players there love him. Uh, the administration loves him. He's really built a culture around this Kent State program. And, um, and Steve, I think I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this, but I, I feel like a, a kind of a trap that a lot of group of five programs fall into is that they, they don't necessarily have an identity, right? They don't really have a, a, a culture about them. And, and he came in with his flash fast offense and really took a team that had no identity and gave them something, gave them an identity, something to like cling to. And it's really, really grown over the last couple of years and really worked well. I, I agree with that. And I'm going to reference this piece because I still want to speak this into reality when I wrote that uh, piece saying that Kent State should go for two this year. That's another way to bolster your identity for a program like that. And that was one of the reasons outside of the mathematical impact that I wanted Kent State to do that because I think it would really thrive in this offense and the culture that Sean Lewis has created. He's young. He's innovative. He was hired, I think, at 32 years old as the youngest yeah. coach in college football. He still might hold that title. Not exactly sure about that. But just some of the innovation that Sean Lewis is bringing to the table. You look at some of the, these goal line plays he's calling in the Frisco Bowl with a game on the line. And he's calling these unique option sets and really utilizing his players to their best strengths. He's spreading out the field. You see the wide receivers going from sideline to sideline, creating more space in this offense and more room to flow and create just create additional space on the route. So and in the running game. So I think that Sean Lewis has done a lot of great and innovative things for this offense. And I think that he's already established quite a good culture and identity at Kent State. And they really seem to be a team that's banded together. And that's why they were voted the Mac East favorite for the 2021 season at Media Day. Yeah, for sure. So well-deserved extension here for Sean Lewis in Northeast Ohio. And um, Kent State, uh, with an opportunity kind of to reintroduce themselves to the college football, uh, you know, culture here in a couple weeks when they go down to College Station to take on the number six Texas A&M Aggies at eight o'clock uh, on national TV on ESPNU that first Saturday of the season. Steve, if I remember correctly, you're going to be at that game. You're going to be covering that game for us, right? 
Yes, I plan to be. I am about an hour, less than an hour and a half away from College Station. I've been to a lot of games there. Uh, it is one of the most intense atmospheres in college football, largest stadium in the SEC. Kent State's definitely going to have to hear a handful from the 12th man. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a cool crowd. They have all these, these cheers that they call yells that they do throughout the game, like when the other team's on offense. And uh, it, it creates such a unique atmosphere. And I know these Kent State players, uh, unless the ones that played at Happy Valley a few years ago, but that was a day game. I do feel like a night game does bring a different atmosphere. So this is going to be a Saturday night in College Station to start the year. And I don't know if these players have played in an atmosphere like that before. So it's going to be intense there. And I, I just have to say that Texas A&M is going to debut a freshman quarterback while Kent State has Dustin Crum. So yeah. as great as A&M's defense is with nine returning starters and a bunch of good skill position players like Isaiah Spiller, Anaya Smith, Chase Lane, Kent State does have that advantage at quarterback in this game. And I think it could create a potential thrilling environment for a week one game. Uh, sneaky, sneaky good game on ESPNU. I agree. Yeah, I agree. That is definitely that game is going to be appointment television for me on uh, on September 4th. I'm really looking forward to that one. So, um, again, congrats to Sean Lewis. Well deserved extension for him. And, and uh, we'll see what the, the Golden Flashes are able to do on the field starting in September. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's go ahead and move into our, uh, our first season preview of the night here uh, this evening, Steve. And, and we'll start in the Western Division. We're taking a look at the Toledo Rockets. Uh, Toledo finished up last year four and two overall, um, awfully close to, um, you know, a, a perfect season, you know, close loss to Ball State, obviously that heartbreaker to Western Michigan as well. And I got to be honest, Steve, as I was doing my research on the Rockets here over the last few days, I feel like I maybe wasn't giving the Rockets enough respect over the last month or so as we approach the season. I didn't realize this team We've talked a lot about veteran teams this year and a lot of teams having a lot of seniors back and stuff like that. This team returns 97% of its production from last year, which is just, I mean, you almost never see that in college football. I would be curious to get your take on this though, Steve, because before we even break it, you know, get into breaking down this specific team, this specific year, Toledo for like the last three years for me under Jason Candle, I know back, you go back to 2017, they won the MAC championship. But since then, like 2018 on, it seems like every year their, their, their talent, it seems like they don't produce up to the level of, of their talent. It seems like they've underperformed a little bit these last three years. Do you think, am I over-exaggerating that, or do you get that same sense? I don't know if it's necessarily underperforming, but this team is pretty stagnant where we're in a full 12 12- game season with a bowl game that they're a nine and four and eight and five team every single year it seems and I know injuries have been a really big factor of it because this team since Logan Woodside graduated after the 2017 season they haven't really had a full season of healthy quarterback play Mitch Guadani went down in 2018 and 2019 we had Eli Peters go down last year and Carter Bradley finished the season and Peters is now medically retired from football and serving as a grad assistant on the staff so that is a big loss in terms of the 3% that's not returning production for yeah. Toledo. But I, I would say that injuries have definitely played a major factor in it. And also some terrible luck and close games that Toledo's had. And that Western Michigan game from 2019 was the epitome of it, where they had a double digit lead late in the game and Western Michigan got an onside kick and a fake spike to win the game. And just some of those games, 2019, Toledo seemed on track for an excellent season and something happened to Bowling Green that day where they were only able to score seven points and the Falcons defense was able to brutalize them in all facets of the game and their season kind of took a downhill turn from there and they finished that season two and five and didn't even qualify for a bowl they were kind of beat up at the end of that year too with a lot of their starters missing so I would say injuries have played a factor but there have also been just 
brutal luck in some trap games that Toledo has been unable to overcome the past couple seasons. And I think that's played some a part in the fact that the Rockets haven't got back to the MAC championship game. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You mentioned you mentioned the quarterback situation here. Uh, Eli Eli Peters retires. You got Carter Bradley coming in uh, as your full time starter this year. He's he's played you know parts of of the last two years. He's he's gotten some snaps here and there. It's crazy. He's in his fourth year on campus and he's still only a crazy. Um, two starts last year for Carter Bradley. Almost 62% completion, 849 yards, nine touchdowns, five interceptions, threw for 400 yards versus, uh, versus Northern Illinois. I got to be honest, Steve, if when, let's, you know, when we're looking at this offense, that's really the only question mark for me is what, what are we going to get from, from Carter Bradley? I mean, you got Bryant Kobach back at running back. You got your, your, you know, your top three receivers back Instead, Bryce Mitchell, Denzel McKinley-Lewis. You got a solid O-line, maybe the most veteran offensive line in the conference, 101 career starts. To me, if, if, if Carter Bradley can, can have himself a good year this year, this offense, I mean, they have as much talent as anyone in the conference, I think. Yes, Carter Bradley is going to play an X-factor in this thing. And I thought when Carter Bradley was thrown into that 2019 Kentucky game, I don't think he was ready for the level yet of college football. And he never really established his footing that year. When Guadani got hurt, I always thought Peters had the better performances. And he finished that season with a sub-50 completion percentage, only one touchdown and 100 attempts and two interceptions, five yards per attempt. And then last year, I thought we really saw growth out of him. In those last couple games when Peters was down, where he threw for 432 yards against NIU, three touchdowns and then followed up with three more touchdowns against Central Michigan the following week with victories in both of those games. I'm starting to think that Bradley's getting more used to this quarterback role at the FBS level. I think he's molded into a much better player over the past year. Now, he still has to cut on some of the mistakes as he had five interceptions in those two wins. So the interceptions have been uh, one issue plaguing him. But the fact that he was able to increase that completion percentage from 46 to 62 in one season just shows how much he has grown at the position in terms of how comfortable he feels, how confident he is. And one thing that's not going to show up major on the stat sheet that I really liked last year was he didn't finish with negative rushing yards. He actually finished positive. And you could see that he doesn't just take sacks now. He has the ability to extend plays and he's a little more escapable when he's facing pass rushes now. I think that's a big part of his game that's going to give him confidence to move forward as a team starter. And he's not going to – he's not Jordan Lynch. He's not going to beat you on the ground or be mobile quarterback. But just able to extend plays and make better throws, I think Bradley could go – his success will go a long way in Toledo's success this year. I agree completely. I, I think on offense that the offense is going to go as he goes. And I think that's a lot of it because again, I feel like at, at you look at all the skill positions. I mean, you got, you have established starters returning that have proven um, their, their worth in the conference. I mean, Brian Kobach, the former Kentucky transfer um, at running back, I, he is again, I think he'll be one of the best running backs in the conference. Um, you know, he's run for over 2,500 yards in his Toledo career, four touchdowns last year, 522 yards. As I was um, as I was doing research for this preview here, I think the one other thing that I where I need to see some improvement is that this I mean this offensive line is experienced and it is deep. They have their entire two deep back. The one area where I'd like to see them improve a little bit, they were they were eighth in the conference last year in sacks allowed. I mean they allowed fifteen sacks last season, which you know fifteen in six games. You know you're looking at a little bit under three a game. Not not great at all by any stretch of the imagination. So I think if they can keep Carter Bradley upright, as you said, he does have a little bit to his legs and he has some escapability and, and, you know, he, he can, he can scramble and, and play if he has to, but I think ideally if I'm, you know, the Toledo coaching staff, if I'm Jason Candle, I'd rather have Cardi, Carter Bradley stay upright and be able to, you know, to sit in the pocket and read the field. And um, obviously I think that this offensive line, they have so much experience. I mean, uh, Bryce Harris, the senior at center, he was first team all Mac last year. You get Mitchell Berg back 
uh, at left tackle. He missed last year. Certainly that will help. But I think if I was had one other concern on offense, it's a very minor concern, but it's that I, I would like to see the offensive line keep Carter Bradley upright a little bit more than they might have last year. Yes, and you mentioned some of it before is that this offensive line's had injuries in the past few years. Bryce Harris missed the entire 2019 season. Mitchell Berg, the starting left tackle from that 2019 season, missed all of last fall. So it's finally done with shuffling pieces, and now you have a fully healthy squad assembled at offensive line. You have experience, and that experience can go even to the second level deep. I'm not sure if uh, if Luke Dorger, who was the starting guard, and last season, if he's going to continue that position or if they're going to move Vit uh, Vitaly Gorman, who was their left tackle last year, if he's going to move the guard. So that's a good problem to have is you have a lot of guys who started full seasons on this roster and just determining who's going to be your starting offensive line. But when you have a leader like Bryce Harris, who Jason Candle has harped on, has been such a cornerstone of the program on and off the field over those past couple of years, that's a good leader to get behind. He's also tremendous on the field with a first-team All-Mac last year. He's a great blocker in the interior line and uh, helped pave some great ways for Brian Kobach back in the 2018 season. So having Bryce Harris return to that offensive line for his seventh year, which he was a freshman in college the same year I was a freshman in college, which <laughs> is make, making me feel still young that uh, some guys like Bryce Harris and Danzel McKinley-Lewis, that's two seventh-year seniors, on yes. the starting offense for Toledo. So a lot of veterans that they have. And I think with the fully healthy offensive line, I think they can maybe mold to be one of, maybe be one of the better units that they've had in the Jason Candle era. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. Yeah, it, it is crazy. You see the amount of experience on this team, a couple seventh year seniors. They had 62 lettermen on last year's squad and 58 of them are back this year for the Rockets. So yeah, certainly no, uh, there's no inexperience on the offense. I mean, even Carter Bradley, the, the quarterback is a fourth year sophomore. So there's, there's plenty of experience on the offense and plenty of production returning. I mean, this is a team led the Mac in, the, in passing last year, 325 yards a game fourth in scoring at 35 points a game. So we'll see what they're able to do offensively this year. Let's, let's take a look at the defense, Steve. Um, you, you start, we, I mean, you start up front here, maybe the best defensive line in the Mac, one of the top two or three at the very least. I mean, you got uh, defensive end Jamal Hines back and defensive tackle uh, Dejuan Johnson uh, both back. They were, again, they were both second team all Mac last year. Jamal Hines, 29 tackles, uh, two and a half sacks. I think this is a really, really good defensive line. They also got Penn State transfer. Uh, Judge Culpepper transferred in this offseason. I really like what this, uh, this unit did uh, last year. I mean, they were second in the MAC in rush defense, second in overall defense as well. I really like the, the, the front seven in general here for the Rockets this year looks very, very strong to me. I really like what I see. Yeah, it's one of the stronger defensive teams that I think that Toledo's had. Uh, even in the Logan Woodside era, it was kind of renowned that Toledo was going to be a great offense, but not exactly provide the same punches on the defensive side of the ball. But their defense has a lot of guys who've been with this program for a long time. Uh, Jamal Hines, Deswan Johnson. And I think that could create a good run-stopping unit up front. I'd still like to see more out of their pass rush, which only produced about two sacks per game last year. And ranked below average in that category Toledo doesn't really have a star pass rusher on the unit it feels like at the moment so just increasing that pressure is going to help a lot and it's going to help a lot especially since Toledo is gifted with I think if I were ranking the max secondaries Toledo's top two or three in there Have Sam Sam Womack is such a good cornerback he's so underrated he, he's a little small at 5'10", 185 pounds, but I just look at his ball tracing abilities and think that I could see for future NFL potential in him. He had 15 pass breakups in 2019, which ranked uh, among the top in the country. It was fourth in the entire FBS, first in the MAC. And last year he ranked first in the MAC again with seven pass breakups. Also had two interceptions in that excellent 2019 season he had and I just remember how he blanketed BYU's wide receivers in that win I thought that was such a great showing by Sam Womack against former number two NFL or recent number two NFL draft pick Zach Wilson so I was really impressed with Womack that game 
then you return uh, Tyson Anderson, who I believe was first team All-Mac last year from the strong safety position. So Anderson's a really good tackler. He's a good hybrid player and playing in the run and the pass. And I think the pairing with him and Saeed Holt makes a pretty good safety tandem that's been on campus for a while. So I'm really raving about this Toledo secondary this year just because I really like their potential. And if they can get that pass rush up, that means the secondary is just going to be able to create more plays in the passing game. It's a great point. That's a great point. And I, I do agree with that. I think the, the front seven being a little bit more aggressive and getting to opposing quarterbacks is going to help out those guys on the back end. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I love Sam Womack at cornerback. Um, you know, Chris McDonald played well in, in, in limited time last year. And then, as you said, Saeed Holt, uh, Nate Bauer's been around for a long time. So this is a, this is a, a, a really experienced defense. I mean, it, this is, it's literally almost a situation where it's like not even saying all of the starters are back from last year because they are, but it's literally like anybody who played any amount of significant football on defense for Toledo last year, they're, they're all back. The, basically the entire two deep is back on this defense. And so, you know, you look at some of look at if you look at last year defensively it's a, it was a little bit up and down for the rockets i mean they 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 start the year you know giving up only 3 points to bowling green but then they give up 41 to western michigan and then they give up tw- only 28 to eastern michigan in a really nice win um and then you know they they finished the year on on somewhat of a stronger note but still you know 24 and a half points a game last year third in the max there's certainly a a very experienced defense here probably the best in Jason Candle's time as you said at at Toledo but i think you know i think this is another thing where it's okay i guess how to say this because of the experience on defense it, it, it's okay if the offense maybe takes some time to get rolling. It's okay, you know, if, if Carter Bradley is going to, um, you know, continue to develop. If, you know, if you're going to have a, a slow game on offense or get a slow start to a game on offense, it certainly gives the, the I'm sure, the, the coaching staff a little bit of confidence knowing that you have a defense like this that you can lean on that can go get stops for you. I feel like there's not, I shouldn't say not a lot of teams in the MAC feel that way, but I feel like, you know, if we're talking about defensive units from top to bottom here, the Rockets got to be in the top two or three in the conference, I would think. Yes, and that, that was especially improved unit last year. I know there were some games against Western Michigan where it didn't really feel like the defense was there, but it, it's a good balanced team, I think, on the defensive and offensive side. And be, before we're just done talking about some of the guys on Toledo, I just want to talk about how stacked this receiving core is. Because you have Daniel McKinley Lewis, who we mentioned earlier, deep threat, who's been with the team since 2015, been on the field since 2016. So that's a good senior leader. Isaiah Winstead last year made all Mac selection, and Winstead was a pretty good option. Bryce Mitchell, I believe, led the team in 2019 in uh, receiving yards. So Mm -hmm. Bryce Mitchell is another good threat returning to this team. Devin Maddox, we got to see some production out of him last year, and he'll be an important part of the offense. And then they got Georgia transfer Matt Landers, who scored a touchdown in the Sugar Bowl against Baylor in 2019 and was seemingly about to increase his role in the Georgia Bulldogs offense. Uh, He only played in the opener against Arkansas last year before deciding to transfer. But having all those guys in one receiving core is huge, I think, for Toledo. So I think that having a unit that's so deep, it keeps fresh legs, it keeps defenses on their toes and having to do more in film study. And I think if Carter Bradley's able to connect with those guys, Toledo will just be in great shape just due to the versatility of the receivers on offense. I don't know if I'm going to call it the best receiving core in the MAC, just due to, I think some others might be more top heavy, but it is definitely the deepest wide receiving core in the MAC. And I think that could also pave the offense a good way. So you're going to have a balanced unit all around. Definitely agree with that. Yeah. You met, you mentioned Bryce Mitchell led the team with 23 and a half yards per catch last year. That was one of the best uh, yards per catch marks in the Mac last season. So yeah, you're right there. I mean, there is no lack of talent on this offense or on this defense for this matter. You know, I think before, before I started really reading up on Toledo here over the last week, as I was preparing for this, I, I think I was, I was looking at Western Michigan as the main challenger for Ball State in in 
in the Western division. And obviously Western Michigan very well may still be right there at the end of the year, but I think Toledo is going to be right there as well. I mean, the fact that they have to go to ball state on, uh, on September 25th as a, the opener of the max season, that's going to be a really, really big game for both teams there. Let's take a look. Speaking of the schedule here, Steve, let's take a look at the schedule real quick. The, uh, the, uh, the Vegas number they set for their win total this year for the Rockets was eight. So I'm going to see if we try and see if we can find eight wins here on the Rockets schedule. Um, they got, we have a decent non-conference slate here. You have, you open up with Norfolk state at home an FCS team. I think we can chalk that one up as a win. The next two games though, are somewhat are, are interesting to me. You go to Notre Dame in week two, and then you got Colorado state at home in week three. Obviously, Notre Dame, extremely talented. I, I, you know, I'm not sure I would expect the Rockets to go in there and win that game. Colorado State's an interesting one. They had a, a, a tough year last year. I know the Rockets went out to Fort Collins back in 2019 and knocked off the Rams 41-35. Former Boston College head, co- head coach Steve Adazio there at the helm of the Rams now. And then in week five, you got UMass at UMass, which I, I think we can, I mean, you might as well call that an FCS game as well. Let's, uh, so I don't know. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on those Notre Dame and Colorado state games though, Steve, I Colorado state. I, I, again, I know they had a tough year last year and I'm not uh, going to pretend to know a ton about them coming into this season, but that feels like a little bit of a coin flip game to me. And then obviously going to South Bend is a tall task. Yes. You can already chalk up a one and no win against Norfolk state, which is the former program of wide receiver Isaiah Winstead. So there's a fun connection to watch on. Ah. So- September 4th in that game. So they're going to start 1-0 going into that Notre Dame game, a game that's receiving a little bit of infamy around the college football world right now due to its availability exclusively on a streaming service. Oh, yeah. Don't even get me started on that. (laughs) So that's going to be tough for a lot of college football fans that like to just sit in front of the TV and watch. And Colorado State, I don't know how many MAC non-conference games I have enjoyed more than the 2019 game between Toledo and Colorado State, which featured Toledo stopping Colorado State touchdowns on both on Hail Marys in the first half and the second half, both on the one-yard line. It was one of the wildest things I've seen. And then the third quarter was a completely crazy quarter of scoring. It was Bryant Kobach had like 200 rushing yards in that quarter alone. And Toledo just kept heating up and – it was just one long run after another long run. It was an absurd game, and Toledo survived with a 41-35 victory. I don't think this year's Colorado State team has the same firepower as the previous uh, – as a 2019 team did. They still have some good receivers returning in Dante Wright and DJ Scott, but there's some uh, replacements they'll have to make offensively. And I also don't think due to the initial cancellation of last year's Mountain West season that we never really got to learn too much about the 2020 iteration of Colorado State as they only played four games and finished one and three. So still a lot to learn about this Colorado State team, but this time the game is going to be in the glass bowl instead of Fort Collins. And I think Toledo is the better team going into this game. I think the Rockets should be about touchdown favorites over Colorado State. We're not going to learn too much about Toledo in the first two games, assuming they have a one-and-one split with Norfolk State and Notre Dame. So it's going to be a non-conference game to really assert who the Rockets are going to be for this 2021 season. Yeah, that's a great point. That, that's a great point. It'll be kind of a great barometer for them in week three. And then, again, round out the non-conference schedule with a game at UMass in uh, in week five. Now, in week four, they open up the max season with a game at Ball State in Muncie, uh, which that, I think, will be a huge game, especially coming off that Colorado State game. I think if, if we're going to say if, – if we're going to chalk up uh, Colorado State as a win, you're looking at, you know, two and one going into that Ball State game. So you go Ball State, UMass, Northern Illinois, and at Central Michigan. It, when, as I look at this schedule now and seeing the way it plays out, Steve, it really feels like that Ball State game is kind of going to be the key to the rest of the season for the Rockets. If they win that game in Muncie, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that they'll have the inside track in the Western division. Obviously, they'll still have to play Western Michigan later in the year, but that'll be a home game. 
if they can win that game at Ball State and get to three and one in the and uh, you know one and zero oh in the conference, then you have UMass and Northern Illinois the next two weeks after that. You could, you know, with if you're able to pick up a win there in, in Muncie in, in somewhat of a, an upset, I guess most people would consider it. You're looking at potentially being five and one going into that Central Michigan game in week seven. Yes, I remember that one program that used to always have Toledo's number was NIU and that has kind of transitioned. And now it's Ball State. There was that game in 2019. It was a week after the Bowling Green game where Toledo was trying to get back on the right footing, be the favorite in the Mac West against. They go into Muncie and Ball State obliterates them. It's yeah. 38 to zero at halftime, 52 to 14 final. And honestly, Ball State could have made things much worse that day for the Rockets. Last year, Ball State only won by three, but it was one of those games where if you watch the game, it never felt like Toledo had a chance to win as they scored a couple late touchdowns at Bryce Mitchell and came back late in that game to even make it a three-point game. So kind of like that Ohio State-Indiana game last year. Uh, so Ball State is definitely uh, a footing ahead of Toledo right now. And Ball State has just similar returning production, only losing two starters from last year, I believe, Antoine Davis, wide receiver, and Antonio Phillips, a cornerback. So I think that Ball State's going to be pretty prepared in this game, and they also get the benefit of playing it in Muncie. It's, Toledo can win this game, but I would pick the Cardinals to have the Rockets in that game. But Toledo, I think the schedule favors favors them for the re, uh, next couple of weeks playing NIU and Central Michigan, teams they were able to handle with Carter Bradley at quarterback last year to round out the season. So they're going to have those opponents again. I, I would pick the Rockets to beat both of those teams. And then you have that October 23rd showdown against Western Michigan. And I, I mean, I, I just get excited thinking about that game after last year's midweek matching between them, which was the epitome of a midweek matching game. Yes. I don't think I've ever seen anything wilder on a, uh, in a midweek game than what we saw from those two last year. So that's definitely going to be a fun showdown between Caleb Ellaby and the Broncos and then a uh, solid Toledo defense and their Brian Kobach and their receiving attack. So that's going to be one of those games that I'd mark as a toss up. And yeah. Yeah, to close out the year, that's not a bad schedule to close out the year. Eastern Michigan, you get Bowling Green, which is your annual crossover opponent, which is not a bad deal to beat Toledo in the Battle of I-5. And then you finish with an Ohio team that we don't know much about, but is experiencing a lot of uh, turnover and head coaching uh, with losing Solich and having to go to Albin. And then you close the season at home against Akron. I think Eastern Michigan, Bowling Green, Ohio, and Akron is a great schedule to finish with. I see three and one or four and oh in that. So I think this Toledo team, at first I'm like, why were they Vegas favorites to win the MAC? But I really like how their schedule plays out this season. And I think that they could make a run at the MAC West, but that Ball State game, it's going to be a big game because they're, they're essentially two games behind Ball State if they fall in Muncie there. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I, I think for me, that last month of the season, that last stretch there, I would, I think I would pick Toledo in all four of those games. So if we're going to go, if we're looking at three and one in the non-conference and four and oh there to, to finish the year, that leaves us with, you know, you get, you got Ball State, Northern Illinois, Central Michigan, Western Michigan. I agree with you. I'm probably picking Ball State in that game. Western Michigan and at Central Michigan feel somewhat like coin flips, but I would still probably pick the Rockets in that Central Michigan game. I, I mean, eight and four is what Vegas is saying. I, I think, though, if things break Toledo's way there, I could easily see a nine and three, 10 and two type, maybe 10 and two might be a stretch, but I could see, you know, nine and three doesn't feel like it's out of the question for me. Yes, I, I chalk up Ball State, Notre Dame as losses, and then I'll say they'll lose one, they'll lose one or two games against the group of Western Michigan, Central Michigan, Eastern Michigan, and, and Ohio. They'll okay, lose one or yeah. two. So that's eight and four, nine and three going. Yeah. And that's pretty much what Toledo has been over the past couple of years under Jason Candle. So it's good, solid, consistent team. Not quite an AP top 25 appearance, but 
still still good to have a consistent program like Ohio has really had over the past few past year. I think Toledo's last losing season was Tim Beckman's first year in 2009. So it just shows what the Rockets have established in terms of a winning culture there at the glass school. Definitely. Yeah, definitely one of the most consistently good programs in the Mac uh, with, with a number of, 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 you know, a string of good coaches they've had going back 20 or 25 years now. Always, you always expect to see the Rockets at the top of the conference. And I think um, a lot of Rocket fans are really eager to get back to that point here this season. They certainly have the talent to do it. So we'll see what the Rockets are able to do. They open up the season, uh, as we said, on Saturday, September 4th against Norfolk State. Uh, the first meeting ever uh, between the Spartans and the Rockets. So best of luck to the Rockets this year. Let's move over to the Eastern Division here, Steve. And to me, uh, this feels like a team that is not getting a ton of respect. That feels It feels like Miami is a little bit overlooked. I mean, there's so many talented teams in the MAC, so many veteran-laden teams in the MAC this year with Ball State, Kent State, Toledo. We just talked about Western Michigan. Miami seems to kind of get lost in the shuffle and, and people forget that they won the Mac championship game two years ago in 2019 out of nowhere, kind of nobody expected it. You go two and one last year, you only got to play three games, but I mean, I look at the, you know, the Vegas numbers we were talking about Miami's win total set only at four and a half. And I know uh, when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, you, you mentioned that, you know, it felt like people were kind of overlooking the Red Hawks. And I agree with you. I mean, this is a team that uh, has, has a lot of talent back and could be, you know, they're going to make some noise in the Eastern division. They could be right there. Yes. We, Miami is another team last year. I've mentioned a couple teams like Ohio Bobcats, even Colorado state and the mountain West that we never really got to learn about last year. And Miami is one of those teams. They opened the season with a really good gritty win against ball state 38 to 31 very sound offensive game for the Red Hawks. And then their next game, they lose to Buffalo and their passing defense gets completely exposed. They stop the run. They manage to stop Jarrett Patterson and the Bulls. But then Kyle Van Therese just takes over the air that game and throws a handful of touchdowns on the Red Hawks. So that kind of exposed some of the weaknesses that they had in the secondary. And then they close the season with a nice predictable win over Akron, proving that Miami is still a team that can coast to victories when expected to. So I thought that, I mean, they, they did finish with a ranked win last year as Ball State finished number 23. So only Ball State and Miami earned wins over ranked opponent, uh, teams that finished ranked last year, I believe. Unless San Jose State did. I don't think they did, though. I don't think uh, they did either. Yeah. So Miami's a good team, and they have a lot of veteran guys still from that 2019 team that won the MAC championship under Chuck Martin. That team only went eight and six, but I think Miami's actually improved since then. I think a main part of it is just due to the development of Brett Gabbert. Gabbert was just a project as a freshman where I saw some of the throws he was making against Iowa, and I said, this guy's going to be excellent a couple years down the road. I said, by his junior year, he's going to be maybe the best, if not one of the best quarterbacks in the MAC. He wasn't afraid to make mistakes. He went out there. He looked confident. And by the time that he played in that lending tree bowl against Louisiana, which was his best game as a passer yet with back then he had, uh, it was his career high with a 71% completion percentage in a game, 248 yards, didn't have an interception. And he almost had a touchdown if uh, James, James Burns Jersey wasn't so elastic and elasticity in his Jersey, but Gabbert comes back from that bowl game last year, uh, from that bowl game in 2019. And last year, he got hurt in the opener against Ball State, but looked good when he was in. And then in the closer against Akron, he had 308 yards, four touchdowns, all without an interception. So Gabbert had an excellent season in the very limited action he was playing last year. And I think that with all of that experience under his belt, now he can be more of the program's leader. He didn't really have that role in 2019, despite being their starting quarterback. But I really like where Gabbert's at right now as a program. And when he's given a pretty loaded receiving core, just like we mentioned with Toledo, I like Jack Sorensen, who's been tremendous in some of his last games. Jalen Walker, 
has been a good short sideline threat recently. James Burns is an incredible deep threat, averaging nearly 20 yards a catch in his career. Then you have Matt Kippenhammer, the Penn State transfer, who came in last season and provided good support to the receiving core. Miami has a lot of guys that Gabbert can target, and I think that this passing offense can take another level this year with all those pieces returning. Yeah, the passing offense is what really excites me uh, about the potential here for, for Miami. You know, you mentioned Brett Gabbert, freshman of the year in the MAC in 2019, but last year he only threw 35 passes, so he didn't really get the chance to do a ton. Um, his backup, A.J. Mayer, didn't play terribly in, in, his, uh, in his time. Uh, you know, he led, them, led to that Ball, Ball State victory after Gabbert went out. Um, only completed a little bit under than a half of his uh, 47% of his passes, four touchdowns and one interception. But obviously this, this job is unquestionably Gabbert's. I think the thing that um, the thing that I'm really curious to see for Miami this year, at least offensively is going to be the run game. This is a team that was 10th in the Mac last year in rushing. You were without your top two running backs. So Jalen Bester and Tyree Shelton, both out for the year last year. They didn't have a single rusher over 100 yards last season. They, I know they only played three games, but even still, their, their leading rusher last year was Zach Kahn, who had 18 carries for 92 yards. I mean, this, this was a running game that was basically non-existent for the Red Hawks last year. You look at the offensive line, you lose Tommy Doyle, obviously. He, he gets drafted, so that hurts. And, um, and Danny Godlevsky, the center as well. So there are some questions on the offensive line, but I mean, again, I, I, I want to, I'm really curious to see what Jalen Besser and Tyree Shelton look like this year. Uh, I want to see what this run game looks like in general, because I feel like if they can bring the run game along to match the, the firepower that they have at, at, with Brett Gabbert and the receivers, then this is going to be a really potent offense. But I think a lot of it depends on, you know, how Jalen Bester and Tyree Shelton are able to integrate back in and how this offensive line is able to develop. Yes, Miami was never a dominant run game in 2019, like Jarrett Patterson or Levante Bellamy, where they would just break away for big carries and take over games. But they were efficient, where if they were needed in short yard situations on a third and three or by the goal line, they'd produce. And Jalen Bester that season even put up 14 touchdowns. And those two running backs didn't make too many mistakes, Bester and Shelton. So it'll be good to see that duo return to the lineup because Miami really needed those guys last year seem like to fortify that running game. The offensive line, there are some questions in it because Tommy Doyle, that's a first a two-time first team all max selection is going to be gone drafted by the Buffalo bills in the fifth round. And Danny Godlevsky, somebody who's been with the program for seems like eons has now transferred to Oklahoma state. And he'll, he'll probably take over as a starting center there in Stillwater, but Miami they, they have one of the more inexperienced offensive lines in the conference. When I look at the entire offensive line, that's only 31 games started. And the three-game pandemic season has a lot to do with the lack of starts across the entire offensive line. But 31 games across uh, six players isn't too much for the Red Hawks. And I think that left tackle spot this year is probably going to go to Sam Vaughn, who I really like because he's – he hasn't really played too much, but he's a 6'7", 306-pound guy, and I think he has a massive frame that's suitable for protecting the blind side there, and I think he can become Doyle's successor. I They have Bennett Clark, who's probably going to line up on the opposite side of the offensive line, and he has two starts last year and also started a pair of games during that 2019 MAC title run. Then the interior offensive line has uh, some guys that have started just a couple games before. The only two really experienced guys on this line are their, your guard, Rusty Beth, who started nine games, uh, the last nine games the Red Hawks have played. And then uh, Caleb Schaefer, who I think might move from guard to center this year to replace Godlevsky, who started, he started 10 games as a Red Hawk. So that's really not the most experienced offensive line, but I do like the build of this line. Every single guy is 6'5", at least, and 300 pounds. And when yeah. you have offensive line of that size in the Mac, I think that can go a long way. Yeah, definitely some, some big boys up front. And I feel like that's, that's very much in contrast in terms of experience, at least that's very much in contrast to a lot of the other teams we've talked about. Just mentioned Toledo, you know, last week we talked about, uh, you know, central Michigan and, and all these teams that have 
basically their entire offensive lines back. And, and that's not the case here for Miami. So there's definitely some question marks there, but as we said, they have the quarterback and the wide receiver position, even the running backs, everything else is figured out on offense. Um, it's really just going to be a matter of whether or not this offensive line can get some continuity um, as, as they develop through the season, there's definitely some youth there. So well, that's some, certainly something to monitor if you're a Red Hawks fan. Let's take a look at the defensive side of the ball here for a minute, Steve. Ten starters back on offense, not quite uh, as experienced as Toledo, but very experienced nonetheless. I mean, you got some great uh, guys up front on the defensive line. You know, Cameron Butler had two and a half sacks last year. Lonnie Phelps up there as well. Um, I really, obviously, you know, Ryan McWood at, at linebacker, he was third team all Mac last year, led the team in tackles. He's one of those guys that feels like he's been there forever. There's a lot of talent on this defense here too. I feel like this is one of the, the, the better defenses in the Mac. Um, obviously I know I said that about Toledo too, but I think it applies to both units here. There's a lot that I like, at least in the front seven, they're losing some guys on the back end, but I still really like a lot of the individual talent hat they have here on defense. Yes, especially in the front seven. I am a big fan of Ryan McWood and Ivan Pace, who I think that's one of the better just duos of linebackers that you can find on any team in the MAC. Last year, McWood had the basically the game-winning interception in that win over Ball State, mm-hmm. and I think he has some first-team All-MAC potential. He had 34 tackles, three tackles for loss last season. I think McWood, and then the combination of him and Ivan Pace. Pace really took a step up in his game last season. In those three games, he almost averaged 10 tackles a game with 26 takedowns. And also, he can serve pretty well as a roving linebacker in the passing game. So I think that McWood and Pace all, both have that versatility to operate in both game, uh, both the run-stopping and pass-stopping attacks. So I think that that combination is going to be pretty good. And then one other player I think is really interesting on Miami is Dominique Robinson. He was a wide receiver in 2018 and 2019, and he transitioned to defensive end. We've seen weird position changes before in college football. I mean, we saw Dwayne Eskridge flip back and forth between receiver and corner. Outside of the Mac, we saw like uh, Iowa State quarterback Joel Lanning and North Carolina's quarterback Chas Surratt both switched to linebacker and have success there. But I don't know if I've ever seen a wide receiver transition to defensive end at the collegiate FBS level. And he had some success last year. He had nine tackles, two and a half tackles for loss of the defensive end. I mean, he's a big guy. He's 6'4", over 250 pounds. I'm sure he's only getting bigger since getting into that role. So I thought that was a really interesting position change. And the fact that it seems to be working out for the Red Hawks is something that's even more surprising and more impressive to me. I, I would be curious to see what his playing weight was when he was a wide receiver versus what it is. I mean, you're six, four, two He had to have put on 50 pounds uh, or maybe, maybe not 50, maybe 20 or 30 pounds from the time uh, when, when he made that transition, but point well taken. I agree with everything you're saying. When we look at the back end here, Steve, this defense and the secondary, obviously losing Manny Rugamba hurts at cornerback. He he was a very good defensive back for them for for a number of years there after transferring from Iowa, but everyone else is back. I especially like Sterling Weatherford, uh, one of the best safeties in the conference. This is a team that, you know, defensively, they did struggle a little bit against the pass last year. They were 10th in the conference in uh in 267 pass yards a game but there's a lot to like here on the back end like I said I feel like having a good safety like Sterling Weatherford back there really kind of solidifies the defense and uh you know he had in in um in 2019 he had 18 pass breakups third team all mac uh even the year before that in 2018 he had 98 tackles and five and a half tackles for loss so it's it's great to have a veteran presence like that there in the defensive backfield like Sterling Weatherford and I think that'll help make up a little bit for the loss of of Manny Rugamba who who was a very good cornerback yes Weatherford kind of feels like a hybrid safety linebacker type with some of the way that he hits and he's a big guy too at 6'4 220 that's a that's one of the larger safeties in this conference and in college football so I think that Weatherford's presence on the field should help a bit. I still have a little bit of concern about the cornerbacks, especially after that game against Buffalo last year. They didn't have to really face a sharp passing attack in Akron to close the season, so they weren't really tested in that game. But yeah, losing Manny Rigumba is going to be pretty big for 
the secondary and that really makes Cedric Boswell have to stand up he's an he's an Iowa transfer who last year he had just a I think he started every single game last year had a few tackles still getting ingrained into the system and being a starter but I think Boswell is going to be a big year for him to step up and cover some of those wide receivers uh, that we've been talking about that have in the Mac that are returning and they're going to be it's going to be a better group of receivers this year for these corners to go up against yeah definitely yeah you mentioned that Buffalo game last year they really see it really seemed like they sold out to to stop the run and uh, kind of forgot about the past Kyle Van Treese in that game was uh, 17 for 27, 353 yards. You know what's crazy is you look at the box score from that game, and I say that, you know, Miami kind of sold out to stop the run against Jared Patterson and Kevin Marks. They held Buffalo to – or I should, they held. Buffalo gained 205 yards on the ground that game, which made you think, like, wow, that's not very good. They gained over 200 yards. It's not bad considering Buffalo averaged 309 yards on the ground a game last year. I mean, just one of the most absurd rushing attacks in recent college football history. Miami held them below their average, but still, I mean, 200 yards is 200 yards. So I agree, I agree with you. There's definitely some question marks there on the back end with, uh, with, with this defense. Let's, let's take a look at the schedule here, Steve. As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, when we started talking about Miami, the, the win total here uh, for the Red Hawks this year set at four and a half. And oh, that, four sorry, and a half? That's what, uh, that's, what, that's what it is on DraftKings, yeah. That's, I, I'm not a betting man, but that sounds like free money to me. So. I, as, as we've been, as I was doing research this week and as, you know, as we've been talking about it tonight, I, I agree with you. And uh, hold on. Let me let me look this up right now and see if I can verify this. They play Akron, Bowling Green, and an FCS team. That's three right That's there. That's three right there. Yep. I agree with you. Let's see. Vegas Insider says that Miami is at four and a half. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Four and a half for the Red Hawks here. Man, that uh, – okay, so I'm on DraftKings now, and it has gone up to five and a half. I still, though, I mean, I, that's still that maybe feels a little bit more appropriate. But I mean, I still feel like, as you said, I mean, we got you got Long Island, you got Akron, you got Bowling Green all on your schedule, all at home. There's three wins right there. So now I got I got five. Or I'm sorry, I have nine additional games. I got to find I got to go three and six in those other nine games. I feel like we could probably find three wins on this schedule here. Let's let's take a look at the long, the the non-conference here, Steve. You open up; it's a tough way to open up the season. You go at Cincinnati, at Minnesota, the battle of the victory bell there for uh, for the Red Hawks and the Bearcats, one of the oldest rivalries in uh, in in college football. Cincinnati has won 14 straight in that game, and unfortunately for Red Hawks fans, I, I don't see the Red Hawks breaking that streak this year. Minnesota has some uh, some talent that they have to replace, but still a Big Ten team. Then you got Long Island and Army. Army is never an easy place to play or an easy team to prepare for. Feels like one and three, two and two is is probably the ceiling here in the non conference for the Red Hawks. Would you would you agree with that? I think that Miami's actually pretty well equipped to stop Army with a lot of the pieces in the front seven. Also, when you look at Army last year. It's a very deceiving record because Army finished with whoa, nine and three. And when you look at those games, they played FCS teams three times, padding their record. They played a winless Louisiana Monroe team that they beat 37 to seven. Their, yeah, Navy wasn't that great last year. I will say that their win over Air Force. Mm. Like Air Force was three and three though, but they lost to Boise and San Jose State. Their yeah. win over Air Force was decent, and their win over UTSA was decent. But I think Army last season was like a world-breaking team. I know they challenged West Virginia late in that Liberty Bowl and ended up losing that game. But I think that Army is going to be a pretty beatable team, and uh, just as they were two years ago when they finished five and eight. So mm. I think that game is more of a toss-up and. You have that game taking place at West Point. I'm not sure about the result of that one. That's one that I'll label a coin flip for now. Minnesota could be an interesting game. I know Tanner Morgan's still there on campus, and he doesn't have his wide receivers, Rashad Bateman and Tyler Johnson, anymore, which 
he operated with the past couple of years, but I still think that the the Gophers are going to be a pretty good team, especially with the return of running back Muhammad Ibrahim, who I think had two 200-yard games last year. So Miami's going to have their hands full against Minnesota, who has a massive offensive line, a good running game. So I would chalk that one up as a loss. So yeah, you're staring at an 0-2 start probably. And I said one and two or three and three, oh, two and two or one and three. But Miami's no stranger to getting beat down in non-conference play and coming back from it because in that 2019 season where they won the MAC, they had to face rank three teams that finished ranked to end the year: Cincinnati, Iowa, and Ohio State. And they lost the game 76 to five to Ohio State, and they still managed to win the MAC championship game. So it's a yeah. resilient bunch under Chuck Martin. And maybe these these early season challenges against a Cincinnati team that might be ranked in the top ten by week on week one, maybe having those opponents on the schedule is going to help this team when it gets into MAC play. Yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly, in that Ohio State game in 2019, I did Miami led in that game. I weren't they up three nothing in that game, and then Ohio they were State up five to nothing. They were up five nothing in that game, and Ohio State scored 76 straight on them. Man, talk about a game of runs. <laughs> um, so let's let's say, so I agree with you. We'll say probably one and three, two and two looks pretty likely for the non-conference schedule. You look at the first four MAC games. You got Central Michigan at home. You go to Ypsilanti to, to the factory to take on Eastern Michigan. Then you get Akron at home, and then at Ball State. Uh, Central Michigan and Eastern Michigan both feel like coin flips to me as well. I would give Akron, I would give them the Akron win and probably a loss against Ball State. Um, man, I, there's so many coin flips on this schedule here. I mean, we're through eight games. I have two solid victories. I think Long Island and Akron, two losses, Cincinnati, or three losses, Cincinnati, Minnesota, and Ball State, and then Central Michigan, Eastern Michigan, Army, all, all coin flips for me. Those could all three go either way, I feel like. And Miami beat Ball State last year. I know this year it shifts to Muncie. I don't think that there's a single MAC team that can really outclass Miami that much that I would declare Miami just a losable game for. So I really think that all all eight of those games are winnable. I think that Kent State and Ball State are the toughest two games that they have on their schedule. But I still think that there's winnable potential in all of those. And you're facing a Buffalo team this year that lost a coaching staff, lost Jarrett Patterson, so and lost Coyote Awasi guns, two other pieces on their offensive line. So I really think that Buffalo is going to be a slightly weaker version of what we saw in 2020. And yeah, the Ohio team that we're still trying to figure out in that game's the battle of the bricks in November. And their other Mac East opponents, Akron and uh, Bowling Green, I think will be wins. I think whether they're in the MAC championship game, I love this because it's going to come down to rivalry week in late November. I think that game against Kent State is going to determine who gets to represent the MAC East in the conference championship game. So I am here for it. Wow, I love that yeah. In late November. So excellent scheduling by the MAC this year. That's a great point. That is a great point. Yeah. Um, Miami certainly feels like they have the talent to be able to challenge. I, I feel like after, um, after, you know, reading up a little bit more on the Red Hawks this year, I, I think prior going into this week, I think I would have probably put Ohio above Miami, uh, to finish second in the East behind Kent state. But I think I might flip flop that now. I think I like Miami's roster and coaching staff continuity a little bit more. And I, I think I might take the Red Hawks over the Bobcats there. So yeah, I'm with you, Steve. I, I, I could see that uh, November 27th game at Kent State being a huge, uh, a huge battle. Miami, the Red Hawks actually lead that series 50 to 17 all time, just to show you about historically how much better the Red Hawks have been than the Golden Flashes. But it feels like, again, Steve, there's so many like coin flip games here where it feels like the Red Hawks could finish anywhere from like eight and four to four and eight. And I wouldn't be that surprised. I feel like most likely is somewhere in the middle, you know, seven and five or something like that. But there's so many games here on this schedule with, with the way it sets up and, you know, all of these other factors feels like there's a lot of games on their schedule here that could go either way. Yes. I, I do agree with that. I mean, Miami 
even when they won the MAC championship, they weren't winning a lot of their games really in uh, convincing fashion. So, yeah, this is a team I still want to learn more about after that three-game season last year and try to figure out what they really are against teams that weren't Buffalo and teams that weren't Akron. They only played the two teams that finished ranked last season, Ball State and Buffalo, split them one and one, and they played Akron. So I want to yeah. see the, the middle of the crop of the conference, your Central Michigan, all your directional Michigan teams, your Ohio's, Buffalo's, your current Buffalo iteration, and just see how they do in there. I think getting a win over Minnesota Army could really work wonders for this program, and I won't consider either of those games off the table, especially the Army game, which I think Miami might be favored to win at that point in the season. So. Yeah. All I have to say is Vegas is really underestimating the strength of the Red Hawks because this is a team that I feel like is locked to go bowling in the MAC. I'm only going to give that lock to three teams. I don't even know if I could give it to Toledo yet. I'm going to give it to Ball State, Kent State, and Miami. Those teams are going bowling. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with that. I can't disagree with that. Certainly going to be an interesting year, and I'm, I'm with you. After only seeing three games from the Red Hawks last year, they're definitely one of the teams – that I am very curious to learn more about and see how they, uh, they, they look on the field. Very curious to watch them in that uh, victory bell game against Cincinnati to open the season on September 4th. So that's going to wrap it up for us here tonight, uh, finishing up uh, this week covering Miami and Toledo. Uh, looking at next week, we are going to be uh, doing our next to last season preview episode as we get a little bit closer to the start of the season next week. We will be looking at Western Michigan and Kent State, two teams that we have talked a lot about uh, as we get a little bit closer to kickoff. We're a little bit over three weeks away. It's been a long off season. And, you know, last year, if I don't know, some people aren't even counting it. It was such a weird football season last year. So I know we are all excited to uh, to watch some football here in a few weeks. Uh, Steve, any final thoughts for the people before we uh, before we log off here tonight? I right now in my head, I was I know like a couple of weeks ago, the random thing I was thinking of was Akron uniforms. Now I'm trying to think about assembling and all he still plays in college football team just due to thinking about Danzel McKinley Lewis and Bryce Harris. Uh, I think that would be an interesting thing to uh, make for the Mac. You could also throw Danny Godlevsky there for Oklahoma State, who's a former Miami transfer. It's kind yeah. of cool to see. A lot of these guys that didn't know if they were going to get drafted have another chance to prove themselves. So I think it's it's cool to see so much continuity in the back and seeing some of the same names that have been at these colleges since I first joined Hustle Belt in 2016. And the fact that they're still playing, it, it's going to make for some exciting football and getting to know the players of these teams a lot more. I mean, I feel like I've been writing about Bryce Harris for almost a decade now. <laughs> It's so, yeah, it's so true. So much, uh, so much veteran talent in the MAC this year. That would be a really interesting thing to see. All the sixth and seventh year seniors. Some of these guys, it feels like they're gonna have bachelor's degrees and MBAs and PhDs before they're done playing college football here. So, we're so close, folks. Three weeks away from football. As always, thank you for tuning in tonight. Uh, we will see you guys here back here next Friday. Have a great weekend and a great week. We'll talk to you next week.